ABC recently released an article on residential care of youth in Australia, saying that they welcome more money, but they need to provide young people with a more stable home. Like usual, the ABC are neglecting to look into the facts, so let's dig into that now. Welcome to my cast. Okay, so the, the cast was titled Youth, Resident, Youth Residential Care Funding Welcomed, but advocates say it is more needed to provide, there is more needed, it should say, to provide young people with a stable home. So they had a case study of a young girl who had, you know, a, a tragic upbringing, and, and I wouldn't wish her life on anybody. Um, but, you know, all cases are, have individual circumstances, and we probably shouldn't be painting everybody with one brush here, but we know that that's what the ABC like to do. Uh, Paige had a um, typical background. Um, she had um, multiple uh, foster homes. Uh, sometimes that resulted in her uh, moving into a resi care. Uh, I'll give you a bit of an idea of what resi care is in a minute. Um, as she stated herself that foster carers usually prefer younger kids because they can shape them or control them um, into whatever they want to be. Uh, but the truth really to that is is that the younger kids actually haven't got any learnt behaviours that they get from uh, from either being uh, growing up in a family where they've got no boundaries and no rules or they've been in resi care before and they've got some learnt behaviours from being in resi care. And we'll talk about that more and again. Uh, so in her situation, like unfortunately like some of the situations, the older siblings in the family groups when still living at home will take on the role of parenting and it quite adversely affects their life. And very sadly, in her circumstances, it uh, ended up in her older brother. Once they'd, uh, he, he'd grown up and left home, he committed suicide. Okay, so what is a, a young person in care? A young person in care is usually defined as a, a young person who has had an order granted where the, the guardianship of them, so the young person or the child, has been granted to the chief executive. And that's being, that is the government. And in this situation... That arm of the government, arm of the government, depending on what state you live in, is uh, you know something along the lines of child safety. And I live in Queensland, so it's child safety, youth, and women. Uh, so what are the setups that they have in these environments? Um, I'll talk a little bit more soon about the different types of um, or definitions of being in care. But uh, from my experience working as a youth worker in uh, residential care, the setups can vary quite dramatically. It can be um, in a in a home, a family home, a proper home that's usually privately rented through the service provider, and it'll be a three to four bedroom home. And you can have anywhere between one um, and four kids, and if it's a family group, you can have even more than four kids living in the home. Now, the staffing that, uh, that support these children while they're living there is hopefully usually qualified youth workers, and they have a 24-hour, seven days a week uh, rotation roster. Uh, now, the makeup of these rosters de vary depending on the uh, service providers that are providing that care. Now, um, one of the things to mention here straight away is one of the one of the things that came out of the article from the ABC is that they need to ensure that the service providers are adequately trained. Uh, now, if you were saying that, if you were to say that they need to be adequately trained, they don't give a de definition of what adequately, adequately trained actually is. Now, you could say that they're adequately trained could be that they get provided with an induction training to the company when they join the company. You could 
step that all the way up from a Cert 1, a Cert 2, a Cert 3, a Cert 4, or you could make it um, diploma qualification or even degree qualification, which is probably a little bit on the extreme. The other thing that you've got to look at with the adequately trained is obviously in all instances of, of enterprise, the more training you have, the more qualifications that you have, usually the, the more earning capacity that you're entitled to. Uh, the difference between someone with a Cert 1 would be receiving a pay level that would be here versus someone that, res- that has a, a degree or even an advanced diploma or a diploma would have an expectation of learning there. So if they're saying that we need to have staff, youth workers or carers with more qualifications, then they need to be prepared to pay for that qualification. So we're talking about budgets here. We're not talking about the companies having to budget that within within allocated monies or funds for supporting that child or children in the house. We're talking about the government supporting the industry to be able to receive the right training. Now, uh, from my experience, carers, initial training, just to get them on the floor and working, doing what we call shadow shifts, it can cost up to $5,000 per employee for the initial training. And the annual cost of maintaining and assessing these skills is quite high. Obviously, the person has to, within their role, within their job, maintain the skills and, and provide feedback to support these skills. But also, you need to employ someone to manage and assess and make sure that you're staying up to date with the accredited training or the expected training. So we're talking about a quality systems management here. Uh, and that this is not cheap to pro- provide expert support in this area. And it's not something that can be outsourced either. Now, one of the downfalls for youth workers or carers or even the community services industry in general, it has a massive turnover of staff. And there's a lot of reasons that contribute to this massive turnover of staff. It could be uh, due to fatigue. So there's a we're human services, so it's not like you can just call up sick like you would, say, working at a retail store where you were employed that day to pack some boxes if you call in sick and they can't find another staff member, well, those boxes don't get packed. If you're a youth worker working in a house where um, there's an expectation that you turn up to shift and the young person that you're working with is expecting you to be there, you just can't call in sick. There needs to be someone to come in and replace you. So there's stress or stress or there's pressure put on the, the workers to not call in sick unless it's absolutely necessary. Or there's extra stress on other employees who are already working their quota of um, hours in accordance with how they've been employed to pick up extra hours at short notice, okay? I'm saying at short notice there. And for obvious reasons, the majority of the time, the best people that make good youth workers are people that are parents. So you're talking to people that are at least, you know, probably 30 plus that, that seem to have that connection with the kids because... They, they are parents themselves. They have previous parenting skills that they can use in collaboration with the skills that they get taught through whatever um, professional training that they attend or, or achieve. Now, other things that can affect how a house run, there can be a mismatch of young people in the house. So not all houses only have one young person in there. As I've spoken about previously, they could have one up to four, or if it's a family group, anywhere up to six or seven in a house at any time. And as I said before, you know, there may be an instance where someone's called in sick and they've had to call somebody in at short notice. It might be somebody coming in outside of that team. 
that doesn't know the house and just that small thing with those young persons in the house can be enough to upset them and to cause the house to go into chaos for the day. And that chaos may not end at the end of their shift. It may roll on or, or result in issues being around in that house for another couple of days. Now, I spoke earlier about that there's different types of um, residential care or when we're talking about the, um, the, uh, the guardianship that's handed over to departments. In all instances, the department's first priority is to try and establish the right support with family. It may not be their direct parents, but it may be with aunts, uncles, or older siblings and things like that. So they try and entertain all avenues by doing a lot of research into the families to seeing where they can suitably place them. And, and most kids in care are in that, um, in that arrangement. The higher percentage of them are actually in kinship care rather than residential care. And I'll talk more about those statistics in a moment. Now, there's concerns throughout all of the states in Australia. There's concerns about the level of care provided. And the truth is that the level of care provided is directly related to the funding provided by the appropriate departments in each state. So for, uh, as I said before, for Queensland, it's child safety, youth and women, and whatever you have in the other states. Yeah, there are some concerns about some care providers that uh, are getting paid adequate money and not providing the right measure or amount of care, but uh, all states have processes in place for monitoring and reviewing these service providers, and they have mechanisms in place that, um, you know, it's... It's not like the three strikes you're out, but they have something similar to that where they they might do something that might be perceived to cause harm. They've got to submit a written report of an investigation they've carried out and the department in certain circumstances may choose to conduct their own investigation if they warrant that there's been enough harm being, uh, being committed. Now, looking from a service provider uh, perspective historically, state departments apply a lot of pressure on the providers to accept at-risk kids. Okay, so there'll be it'll be you know four o'clock on a Friday afternoon. They've been conducting an investigation, and somebody's finally made the decision that no, this child is no longer safe to remain in this house, and we we need to find them somewhere more suitable or safer to live. So there's there's two two areas of pressure here. There's pressure on the service provider, but as I just said, it might be four o'clock on a Friday afternoon. There's pressure on the child safety officers from the relevant um, government authority to find a suitable accommodation for this young person for the weekend. So if we're in Queensland, um, a number of years ago, we did have uh, emergency accommodation that was run by child safety officers or their delegates or their representatives for this exact instance where, where they, they couldn't find somewhere, the staff would be allocated to a, it's usually a, it was usually a unit or an apartment, and they would look after that person until they can find a suitable accommodation with a service provider. But a number of years ago, the Queensland government decided to save some money and they cut that out. Uh, but in saying that, when they cut that out, there was no additional funding provided to any of the service providers to put mechanisms in place to have the ability to accept young people at risk at short notice without detriment to to ensuring that the, that the company's viable and is able to run. We're not talking about profit margins here. Most of the companies uh, run as not-for-profits um, or whatever term we're using for not-for-profits these days. Um, so they still need to make sure that the, the, the company can be run 
in a way that it can run long term. Because if they if the company goes out of business because they're accepting all of these children all the time and it's costing them extra money, they're going to fold. And then there'll be if one company folds, that might be seven houses that normally house uh, young people that's going to be gone. And that could be anywhere up to 28 young people that, that the department would have to find new accommodation for. Now, I'm not saying that the Department of Child Safety or relevant or, or, or the applicable one to the state do this as a matter of routine. Uh, they are also under a lot of pressure um, to find suitable accommodation, especially after hours. Now, one thing you have to understand is youth workers and child safety officers are not in it for the money. There's not... They get paid okay, but they're not it for the amount of work, especially the child safety officers and the workload they have. They can't possibly be in it for the money. They're in it because they care. They're in it because they want to see the young people looked after. They're in it because they want to see young people being safe. And that's the same for the for the youth workers on the ground. Now, a typical week for a youth worker looking after a young person with um, high risk behaviours could be multiple assaults during that week. Uh, high risk at um, young person, they could result in having damage done to their personal car. And in Queensland, um, well, I'm sure this will be uh, national wide, the only way that you can put an insurance claim in for something like that is by pressing charges against a young person, which goes against the whole idea while we're looking after them in the first place. So that adds more pressure onto the, the youth workers as well. Okay, so I'm looking here at the uh, child protection uh, website in South Australia, just to get some, some, some pure stats that you can have a look at about who we have in care and why they're in care and what sort of care that they're in. Okay, so in South Australia in 2021, there's a total of 4,471 young people that have been put into residential care because of one of those administrative orders that I talked about, spoke about before, so the, uh, the, the guardianship custodial order. Um, of those uh, family-based, so we're talking about, for family case, we're talking about foster, kinship, and what they call family daycare as well, where someone will go into the house and assist with the running of the house that's qualified. Of the 4,471, 4, 3,845 of those are in kinship care. So they're with their parents. They're where they should be. Or they're with family members, sorry, I should probably say. They're where they should be. Non-family-based in, in, uh, sorry, in South Australia, of the total 4,471, only 626 account for those that are in residential care with a service provider. Okay, now I'll, um, I'll read partially from a, uh, a news article that I found on the website. Uh, it's uh, news.com. In there, there's a statement made, and this is obviously after some uh, investigative uh, uh, journalism. By their late teens, Australians are at their most dangerous with the highest rate of offending in several categories, according, according to figures from the Australian Institute of Criminology. In 2013, the offending rate for people aged 15 to 19 was three times that of all other offenders, 5,340 per 100,000, compared to um, 4,479 per 100,000 for those aged 20 to 24. So what do we take away from that? We're taking away from that that people from aged between 15 to 19 are three, three times more likely to be statistically accountable for the crime that's committed in, the, in, in Australia. So it also says that a breakdown of figures from Australian Bureau of Statistics reveals that people aged between 10 and 19 represent just under a quarter of all offenders. 
despite only making up 14% of the, the population. That's a high number. So from that, you can say that we definitely have issues with youth crime in Australia. Okay, so one of the things that they talk about in, um, in a holistic approach to youth crime, so we're talking about having government officials, uh, police, uh, community services, community support officers, police support officers, uh, psychologists, psychiatrists, and a plethora of other people that get together and talk about this. One of the things that they talk about is the fact that holding young people accountable for their actions when they're a young person, so within that age group where they're considered to be a young person, so 18, uh, so 17 or, or younger, um, if we're holding them accountable for their actions, especially when they're in resident care, uh, residential care, um, we're actually criminalising their behaviour. Now, I'll, I'll go on a little bit more about that soon, about exactly what that means and, 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 and how I observe that and how I've heard other people talk about that. So but what they're talking about is they're saying that if we caution people rather than charge them, then they're less likely to re-offend. Uh, now, they, they, they're saying holistically for, for all people that commit crime in that age group, that that is definitely the case, that people are less likely to re-offend. So, so some of the statistics that I'm looking at here, uh, and again, this is from the Victorian government, um, assaults and related offences. So 14% of people that commit these offences are cautioned rather than charged. So of those 14%, when they're only cautioned and not charged, there's only a 20% chance that they're going to re-offend. I'll look at another instance of that. Theft. Of the people that commit this, these crimes, only 18% of them are cautioned. Of the 18% that are cautioned, only 28% of those 18% re-offend. So there is some data suggests there that, um, that this is the case, that there is, um, there is a good side to this approach. But unfortunately, there's no statistics provided on the flip side of that, of the ones that are charged, how more likely are they to re-offend? And even the other, saying that last instance of theft, they said that 28%, only 28% of them re-offended, uh, didn't re-offend. Um, where's, where, where's the story on the other side of those stats? So it's, it's good information, but it's only telling half of the story. Okay. So I just spoke before about um, criminalising their behaviours. So the, the approach to this, and especially in residential care, so we're talking about kids that are under guardianship, the, the, the words about criminalising their behaviour is thrown around a lot. And there is instances where this is applicable. So in instances where this is applicable, you're a youth worker working in a house with uh, two young people and one of the young people has had a bad day, comes home from school, punches a hole in the wall and swears at you and threatens you, which is quite normal behaviour, unfortunately, in resi care. Um, some companies will actually routinely, because of the property damage, press charges against that young person. Now you think about it, if you're a, a parent and you've got kids and they have a bad day, they punch a hole in the wall, would you call police? No, you wouldn't call police. You would deal with it within the family unit. You would have expectations in place and hopefully your child would be aware of these expectations and they would be expecting some sort of result to come of this. On the other side of this is that the same situation again, a young person 
has a bad day at school, comes home from school, punches a hole in the wall, continues to escalate, swears at the youth worker, continues to escalate. The youth workers, using all of the skills that they have on board, that they've been taught through whatever training they're having, but unfortunately this kid has flipped his lid far too much and he's not taking in what's um, being said to him. He's got no way of processing it because he's so upset about what's going on and he assaults the youth worker. Okay, so that's an assault. To me, this is an instance where, yes, they should be pressing charges. And why should they be pressing charges? All governments spend probably hundreds of thousands of dollars every year talking about emergency services and the fact that, um, that we need to respect them. And there's no excuse for, for you as a, a recipient of their care to be assaulting them. Absolutely no, no excuses for us whatsoever. I can't see how this is any different. Youth workers do not sign along the dotted line to get assaulted. So if that happens, they should be pressing charges. Another valid point to mention here is that another thing that happens quite often is when a young person is escalated, they will cause damage to property, and they do it in the house all the time. Now, that the, the, the companies with the, the property damage, um, the company that I work for did press charges unless, unless it was something that was ongoing, continuous, and was happening all the time. They, they factored that into the budgeting, and, and they absorbed that within the company. On the other side of that is that the youth workers have to get to work. They have to arrive at that house to conduct work, which 99% of the time involves them driving their personal car. So here we're talking about property damage again. So the young person comes home from school, has a bad day, flips his lid, punches a hole in the wall, swears at the young the youth worker, goes outside, grabs a rock, and scratches the paint all down the side of the youth worker's car. Now, the youth worker shouldn't have to absorb the cost of getting that fixed. And you might say, well, they've got insurance. That's what insurance is for. So for all insurance agencies or companies in Australia, if you are wishing to make a claim of damage via another person to your car, you need to have a police report submitted. And in this instance, the only way to have a police report submitted is by pressing charges. And I'm pretty sure I've already mentioned this. This doesn't marry up with the environment that we're trying to provide for the young people. But I can... Just using this as an explanation of some of the complexities that service providers and youth workers face in the workplace when they're working with these young people who have got obvious trauma and traumatic backgrounds. Okay, so money and budgeting to try and fix this is um, governments, just to give you some examples of what the government is spending money on. Budget highlights include $196.5 million over three years for intensive family support services to continue early intervention for families and parents. So this is a great idea. This is empowering parents and relatives and siblings in the house to be able to provide the support needed to get their loved ones through these times of crisis and trauma. $45.5 million over three years for family and child connected services that help families to get the right help at the right time, very similar to what I've already spoken about. $24 million over three years to support foster and kinship um, carers through non-government organisations. Again, money went well spent on empowering people and places where they live to make them as homely as possible and safe as possible as well. $14 million over four years to implement new and enhanced initiatives uh, under our way, which aims to eliminate the disproportionate representation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait children by 2037. Now, I have a personal opinion on this. Why are they 
the they use the word dispropor- disproportionately represented in the in the system is because they're 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 um, disproportionately abused in their homes. They're disproportionately not supervised by their parents. They're disproportionately allowed to walk around and do whatever they want whenever they want. And they're disproportionately learning behaviours through their life on the streets that lead to lives of crime. $2.5 million over three years to enhance the Next Step Care program. So that's talking about people transitioning into adulthood, which is a, a good idea. So they, they might be have been experiencing real issues when they were younger in the system, but now they're 16, 17 usually 17, and they're looking at transitioning into being an adult rather than just going from being in a residential environment where they've got 24-hour care, they'll move them into an apartment and someone will intermittently come into the house to provide them with, with support where, where it's needed. And $9.6 million to aid in legal services to help young people be represented. We've spoken about a fair bit today, and, and I guess where do we go from here? How do we... How do we I've spoken briefly at the start about the, the story from the ABC... And it's very left-sided approach to kids in care without really telling the whole story, which I've told you the whole story now. So how, how can we stop situations like uh, the young lady that I spoke about at the start with her having a typical um, life in care and being you know, exposed to living on the streets because she's running away from being in care because she doesn't like the rules? Or, or, or purely because of the trauma that she's experienced, which is a very valid point as well. Firstly, I think that the legislation surrounding youth crime needs to be changed, and it needs to be changed quite strenuously. We need to hold young people accountable for their actions. Now, that can be... Accountable can be a something that can be quite minimal when they're younger, and it gradually increases as they become exposed to be an adult. The reason for this is, is because currently they can be 17 years and 360 days old and they can commit a particular crime and because they're not 18 yet, they'll just get another slap on the wrist and it just gets added to their 10-page dossier that they've already got with uh, the criminal justice system or the criminal youth justice system. The day they turn 18 they commit the same crime, they're going to be treated as an adult. How's that being fair to them? How, how is it being fair to them that they can go from not being accountable to potentially going to jail in a matter of five days? That's the government's fault. That situation's happening. Unfortunately for us in Queensland at the moment, we've got a very left-leaning Labor government that's pandering to the snowflakes about how these young people are treated. So we need to adjust or amend our legislation to make them more accountable. One thing that does irk me a fair bit is that um, when it comes to talking about youth crime, governments are always very quick to, to racially divide us. They talk about it separately. They talk about Indigenous youth crime separately to non-white crime, youth crime in Australia. And they talk about it differently than if it was a person that was white that had um, had committed the crime, and you know, and this is all comes down to perception of uh, inequality and things like that. We need to stop dividing the nation in all areas based on race, and this is just another area where we need to do it. 
the, the stats that you can see and, and, and what I've seen personally, non-white people get treated more favourably. They get more support. They, they get more chances. They, they have more programs at their schools in place to help keep them out of trouble. They have more programs in the community to help keep them out of trouble. And they're specifically designed for them, whether they be an Indigenous black or a Sudanese black or, or whatever. It's tailor designed for them. So they have spoken about, um, and I spoke about some money, that the, the governments were looking at spending money and where they can improve things. And we have seen a gradual improvement in one area, and that's the number of child safety officers that are supporting the government in these areas. And for me, it's been uh, not enough, and it's been too late. Now, we spoke about burnout, burnout earlier, earlier on, and child safety officers are absolutely at risk of burnout. And they take the burden of that burnout very personally. If they, they do that job because they want to do it. And they're supposed to have a caseload that's got this many young people in it. But the effect of they've got a caseload, you can't even see my hand, with this many young people in it. But they're expected to provide the same level of care at all times, regardless of the amount of people that are in their care. Now, for someone that's doing that job because they care, to be put in a situation where they where they have to work in their own time, they have to make sure they have their phones switched on when they're supposed to be on days off. They have to respond to phone calls from these young people because they have their phone numbers when they call because they may be in crisis and they may need help. It's not fair on the worker. They don't get paid enough money to be on call like that. I can remember when I was in managerial positions with companies and, and I was on call a lot. And I was paid to be on call. Well, one job I wasn't, but most of my jobs I was paid a lot of money to be on call. So it's an expectation, and I was remunerated for that expectation. But that's not the, the case with child safety officers. Another issue that I've seen personally, and this is just my view, they, they, there's a tendency to hire far too many young graduates straight out of university. They've got no life experience whatsoever. And all of a sudden, they, uh, they're either put in charge of or they're a, an assistant to a child safety officer and usually running most of the cases by themselves with having little life experience themselves. It's not a criticism of them, uh, but it's just a fact and it's the truth. In general, all criminals need to be held accountable. Uh, and we need to start teaching this from a, from a young age. Rather than being taught that they have an almost never-ending system of warnings, which is what we're experiencing at the moment. In all aspects of our lives at the moment, young people are being fed absolute rubbish from people that sit on the left. And it, it is conditioning them for a future that absolutely terrifies me. We need to start speaking the truth to our young people. We need to start making our young people accountable for their actions in all instances.